Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics, and you are yet tuned into another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. And today we have another good episode or a great episode in store for you all. We are talking about some hand. We are talking about first CMC or carpal metacarpal arthritis and joining us we have dr robert gray Uh, a little bit more about dr gray he did his medical school at brown university school of medicine he did his residency at rush university medical center and he did his fellowship at the mayo clinic and he currently practices hand in chicago and we did a i mean this was a great episode we talked about you know first cmc arthritis we talked about the history physical exam findings, what to look for on x-rays, and then how to treat it. And also, what will be a first, and kind of, I guess you could, this is a soft launch. At the end of this, we go over the surgical technique video, so we break it down. And this will be the first of many soon-to-come surgical techniques episodes that we are working on and releasing here in a bit. And for that, you will go to the YouTube channel to check those out. We will put a link to the YouTube video in the description below. That way you can actually see the procedure being done. Obviously, we put it at the end of this episode in case anybody wants to listen to it. But for that, it's a little bit better to view it if you actually want to see the video. And this was the first of many to come. So if you haven't already, please hit subscribe to the podcast. Hit subscribe to the YouTube channel and check it out and if you are a physician or if you know physicians that like to record their surgeries and like to teach that would like to contribute to our surgical techniques episode series where we are breaking down different approaches different procedures please go ahead and let us know email us at nailedortho at gmail.com and without further ado let's go ahead and get into today's episode you are now listening to nailed it the orthopedic surgery podcast Dr. Gray, welcome to the Nail It Ortho podcast. I am uh, happy to have you on. I've been looking forward to having you on for a little while. So uh, welcome to the podcast. Absolutely. No, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the, the opportunity. Yeah. And typically what we like to do is we just start off with a couple of questions, just getting to know you a little bit more as a person. And uh, I know we, we talked briefly at, at one of the courses where you're, you're instructing us and you're kind of helping us go through different approaches. And, you know, you and I chatted for a little while, but if you could, for our listeners, can you, can you kind of tell us the story of what brought you into the into the field or the specialty of hand? Yeah, yeah, no, I uh, I lost a bet is uh, why I'm here. <laughs> oh, yeah. so, you know, you never welch on your bets. There you no, go. The, the, <laughs> I, honestly, you know, so I mean, I um, I, I have sort of a non traditional but also super traditional path. I feel like uh, kind of most people. Uh, Go, go through a couple more steps than, than I did to, to get into ortho and hand surgery. I actually, I was in a combined undergrad med school program at Brown. And so I got into medical school when I was 17. And so I knew pretty early that that's what I was going to do. And so I, um, I, I found out, uh, you know, early on that ortho was something I was probably interested in. I was a, I was a student trainer um, through some of the off seasons in high school and, and wanted to do ortho. And then I got into ortho and I was like, you know, what's hard, like hands hard. So I was like, all right, well, let me do that. You know, cause I, I kind of like hard things. And right. um, uh, you know, I also, I like outpatient things rather than inpatient things. Um, I like uh, you know, dealing with everybody, not just old people, not just kids. Um, and so hand sort of, has that it's hard it's outpatient and you deal with everybody so i I like that variety yeah yeah that's what um so a lot of you had some guests on and asked some somewhat similar questions and a lot of people are saying you know you can um deal with a variety of things so you can see everybody you know it's a wide breadth of things that you can do in the in the field of hand so those that are listening that are contemplating hand there is uh yet some more uh something that helps for you that way uh but Next question I have for you is, uh, I know you spent some, I just read on you, I know you spent a little bit of time in, in Florida and then you moved to your practice now. Uh, can you, can you kind of talk about like, you know, if it was, um, or I guess the difference between more academic side of being in a job and then more kind of the private academic side of things and kind of your experience with it? Sure, sure. No, absolutely. Yeah. So, so my first job out of fellowship uh, was at University of Miami. Um, and I was actually just hanging out with one of my former partners a couple of days ago. Um, I love 
um i loved 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 my partners um and uh you know but it was definitely kind of academic medicine you know big county hospital uh Dexon, for those of you who don't know is like level zero trauma it's really crazy trauma mm. um all all the things that you see uh tertiary quaternary kind of care um and so that's got its ups and downs uh then uh you know we're from the chicago area my wife and i originally um even though i grew up mostly in dc and uh she was pregnant with our first kid and said we got to go back to chicago so i said okay because that's what you do and uh so <laughs> we uh we you know we were looking around and um i ended up um coming into a it's an employed job with a hospital system called North Shore. Uh, and so now we're the North Shore Orthopedic Institute. We have an all ortho hospital, uh, which is kind of interesting. Um, but um, uh, yeah, it really functions more like a private practice than uh, academic uh, practice, uh, though I am still academic. Um, I've got uh, fellows and residents from University of Chicago and residents from University of Illinois. Um, and I actually do more teaching and research now than I did when I was at university of Miami in full-time academic practice. Oh, wow. Um, but you know, essentially, you know, what are the differences? I mean, really, um, you know, private practice and academics are more similar than they are different. You wake up in the morning, you see your patients, you do surgeries, you go home. Um, the details of whether you are a W2 employee or a 1099 employee, um, can vary. Some of the tax considerations vary. Your uh, your control over your direct life varies a little bit. Um, the more employed you are, the less control you have, uh, but also the less control you need. Um, if you're in private practice or certainly solo practice, you have all the control, but you need it. You have to order the band-aids. You have to buy the staples. You have to buy the printer paper. Uh, you have to hire and fire everyone, administrate their 401k, all those things. Uh, when you're employed, whether in academics or, or hospital, you don't have to do any of that. You also can't do that. I can't pick different pens. I can't pick different band-aids. Um, it is harder for me to personally hire and fire people. Uh, but if you're lucky enough to work with a good team, um, then, you know, you, you're able to give up some of that control. Uh, and I'm basically giving up some of that control in exchange for some of my free time back. And so that's, right. that's the, the choice I've made. Okay, cool. Yeah. I always think it's interesting to um, kind of hear everybody's perspectives on, on their different types of practice. And cause you know, we, we talk a lot about uh, medicine, and orthopedics, so we don't talk as much about, you know, practice and things of that sort. So I appreciate you for answering that. And the last question uh, that we have is, do you have any interests outside of the field of orthopedics? Uh, no, but I'm working on it. <laughs> there we go. Uh, <laughs> you know, you know I, I realize I'm like, I don't really have a hobby. Uh, you know, I, I try to work out, uh, you know, that sort of stuff and running. And I realized, well, I'm not going to be able to to bench what I'm benching and run what I'm running uh, in another 30 years. So I got to figure out something I can do in 30 years. So I'm, I'm trying to teach myself how to play tennis, um, try and teach myself a little bit about car repair, though I'd never been oh, interested cool. in that before. Yeah. Uh, ba basically, I'm trying to figure out like what life skills I think my boys should have that I don't have. And I figure we can learn together. I just need to, to be like two weeks ahead of them and then we're, we're good. <laughs> yeah, I like that. That's um, it's always good to find new things that, uh, that interest you and you know there's a whole world of stuff out there um that that you can I guess, just like you said get skills and, and learn something else you know always kind of evolving and um trying to make ourselves better but you know kind of switching gears and you know now we're going to talk a little bit more hand topics today we can talk about kind of first um cmc arthritis basal thumb arthritis i've seen many different names of it but you know arthritis of the uh, first carpal metacarpal joint and just you know kind of starting off what kind of patients do you normally see like with this like i guess is there, is there a particular demographic or that comes into your clinic are they typically male females getting a little background on it yeah it, it's very common in people with hands um, <laughs> yes yeah no, I, I mean it really it, it it just you know so, so it's important the thing that makes humans humans really uh is the opposable thumb and really the crux of the opposable thumb is the CMC joint. I mean, that's really what allows that motion and enables the opposition, uh, both with a uh, power pinch and power grip. I mean, so really it's a, 
an unbelievably important joint. Um, and it starts to wear out really early. In men, it starts to wear out in our 40s, and women typically in their 30s is when it begins. Um, you see it everywhere, and, and you'll see on x-ray literally in every human older than about 40. Uh, symptomatically, it tends to affect women more than men. Um, I, I'd say probably 50s, 60s is, is a sweet spot for women, and then for men, more 60s, 70s. Okay. Usually, once you get to the 80s, it's kind of burned out enough that they aren't coming in for care for it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's who you typically see now, just a thought that I had, I just wonder given the, this is off script or did like a, a, uh, not a necessarily a, a question point, but, um, I, I was wondering, you know, the, the new age of everybody texting, if we'll, if we'll see an increase in CMC arthritis, you know, in the next 20, 30 years, I was just wondering that I just assume. No, it's a great question. CMC arthritis. I don't think so. But okay. for those Thundercats of you out there who are interested in device development like I am, if you want to skate to where the puck is going, it's thumb IP joint arthritis ah. because that's what really wears out with texting. And we have no joint replacements for the thumb IP joint right now. It's basically live with it or fuse it. And you can do very heavy activities with a fused thumb IP joint. You can do power grip. You can do pinch. You can sew. It's hard to text with a fused IP joint. It is. So, mm. um, you know, Thundercats, get your, your pencils ready. Start uh, coming up with your diagrams <laughs> for your thumb IP joint uh, arthroplasties, and then we can talk. Uh, I'm loving it. And so, and then you mentioned a little bit about the, you know, the first CMC joint. Can you kind of talk to us a little bit more about the anatomy, like the important things we need to know, like the bony architecture? And then I know there's some important ligaments and everything as well. Yeah. So, so um, you know, this is one of these joints it studied almost as much as the ACL. You know, there's like 4,000 anatomy papers on it. Um, and I think that, you know, when you have that many anatomy papers on something, even though the topic may be important, the papers may not be as important, but the concept, the shape of it is a little goofy. Um, it's really, uh, it, you know, I don't eat carbs anymore, but when I ate carbs, I really enjoyed Pringles. And so it's imagine it's like stacked Pringles, you know, they, they call it a, a biconcave joint or, uh, you know, two saddles and they kind of uh, fit on top of one another. And it allows for a little slop, uh, you know, with rotation and definitely flexion extension in multiple planes. Uh, but there's enough congruence in the joint that when you load with power grip, which is really the thing that wants to try to dislocate that uh, thumb metacarpal, that it, um, it stays in place. Uh, back when I was uh, in your place uh, taking the, the quiz. I don't know if they've changed the, the answer yet, but the answer on the quiz used to be, you know, what, what was the first ligament to wear out? They talked about the volar uh, beak ligament, um, you know, the anterior oblique ligament, they like to call it too, uh, many, many names. And that's the one that resists the force. And when that wears out, you start to go on to arthritis. Now, it, someone told me a long time ago when I was in training that the questions never change, it's only the answers that do. Yeah. And so I've seen some things where on some of the, at least the hand surgery things have changed the answer on this. I don't know about for the, the ortho end training, but really now the answer seems to be the dorsal ligaments. And this is something I thought as a resident, because it just never made sense to me. When you're doing one of these surgeries, you're going to do a trapeziectomy. You go in, you open up the dorsal ligaments. That's super easy. They just fall off the bone and you're trying to pull that trapezium out and pulling it off those ligaments is murder. I mean, that's the whole case is trying to get that trapezium or the crumbs of it off of those ligaments. So I'm like, well, if these ligaments are the first ones to go, why is this the hardest part to detach from this bone I'm pulling out? That really made sense to me. So I, uh, while sometimes laxity of that can be an issue, especially in young people with early arthritis and reconstructions of that, like the uh, Pellegrini reconstruction are indicated sometimes. I mean, really, I think it's the dorsal ligament that that's most important. And this, this dorsal ligament is just a ligament that, that suspends the, um, the force metacarpal and the trapezium? Correct. Yeah. And, and so there's a central part of it, and then there's a radial and ulnar component. And, uh, you know, when you look at the line drawings, it looks a little bit more well-defined. Like anything else, it's easier to see from the inside than the outside. So if you're looking at the joint capsule from the outside, making sense of where one ends and the other begins, it's very hard. Uh, once you've opened it from the inside, you can, you can see it better. Um, but yeah, the, the, the straight, uh, dorsal ligament, um, 
with the radial molar portions, that seems to be the most important in resisting that uh, straight dorsal. And in this point, I mean, dorsal with respect to the, the thumb metacarpal itself, uh, dorsal translation of the metacarpal on the trapezium, which really seems to be the thing that wears out the first and uh, lands you in trouble uh, with your, your heavy uh, power grip. Uh, okay. So uh, one thing I like, I like the stack Pringles uh, analogy when you were talking about the um, kind of the saddle joint for the uh, trapezium and the first one of carpal. I, I like that. I, I took notes and wrote that down <laughs> there. And um, yeah, every time, at least the couple articles I read, they, a lot of them talked about the that anterior oblique ligament being an important ligament, but I think it's also uh, good to know about those dorsal ligament that you're, uh, that you're referring to and you know, and how you get laxity in that, and then that could end up, you know, increasing your load in the joint, you know, leading to some cartilage loss and maybe some, you know, you know, back to arthritis and where we're at now, you know, and, and just like you're saying, kind of that pinch is one of the most important um, uh, movements, I guess, for, I guess, with our thumb. And so when you see these patients or when they come to your clinic, what, like, what is your conversation like when we're trying to, you know, we're trying to assess, um, where this pain is coming from, like how, what kind of conversation are you having with them and your client to get to this diagnosis? It well, you know, like most diagnoses, um, th this is made off of history almost entirely, you know, your exam and your images help confirm, uh, the, the issue and exclude other kind of red herrings, but someone comes in and they look my age or older and they're just like, my I, if they have, say, thumb or wrist and they start to point towards their thumb, I mean, it's thumb arthritis, period. That's just what it is. Um, so it's not, uh, arthritis is very, rarely a difficult diagnosis to make. Um, the, the nuances of it are, well, so you got thumb arthritis, great. That means you're a human and you're not 20. So what <laughs> do we do about it is the question, you know, and, and, and right. so like, like uh, you know, I mean, and quite frankly, I mean, this gets to a larger discussion of what arthritis is and what our treatments are. And the, the, you know, you can apply them to the CMC joint, you can apply them to anything, but you know, I think a lot of times we treat arthritis and we don't really know what we're treating or why we're treating it. Um, so, I mean, if, if you don't mind, I'm going I'm to turn it towards you. I'm going to ask you a couple questions. If that's okay, okay. Let's do it. The reverse right. Uno card. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so arthritis, right? Sometimes we do surgery on arthritis. Why do we operate on arthritis? Well, I, I think it is, um, I think like if you're talking about the hip because you're having a painful, you know, painful arthritic surface, it's a, a pain um, generator. So I believe the reason we're operating on it is to give these patients, you know, better function, better mobility. Um, you know, I think those are at the, at the core, you know, some of the big things that you want to allow the joint to function and, um, and allow it to move how it should, you know, before all these arthritic changes. For sure. No, absolutely. And so, so, I mean, like arthritis hurts, right? Sometimes, not all the time, right? If you x-ray a human skeleton after they turn 40, 50, whatever, you're going to find some arthritic joints somewhere, probably several, right? Fortunately, most joints that are arthritic on x-ray don't hurt, right? Yeah, right. Uh, or they certainly don't hurt all the time, or maybe it hurt for two weeks and I took some Tylenol and I forgot about it. But the kind of persistent pain that brings you into the doctor's office. Um, it's actually pretty rare uh, considering how common arthritic joints are. All joints are going to eventually get arthritic. So, you know, it's, you help people get out of pain. You're not really, the fact that the joint itself is worn out, if they don't have pain, who cares, right? So you do it for symptomatic arthritis, not just arthritis, but symptomatic arthritis to get them out of pain. And specifically, you're trying to get people out of rest pain not activity pain. Okay. And I think one of the, one of the main issues that we uh, mess up as a discipline is we're a victim of our own success. And so, it, you know, hip arthroplasty and knee arthroplasty are very successful conditions or, or procedures. People uh, keep coming back with more problems. They say, well, why don't I try a hip replacement? Why don't I try a knee replacement? It works so well for these other cases and the indications broaden. And unfortunately I think that's the indications can over broaden, which is why, uh, fully 10% of total knee arthroplasties, perfectly done, no problems, no loosening, no nothing. 10% of those patients aren't that happy with the surgery. 
And knee, knee replacement is the number three surgery in the history of surgery with regards to quality adjusted life years. Total hip is number one, cabbage is number two. So if the number three surgery in the history of surgery still has 10% of patients unhappy, you know, what's going on? Is it because we're the poly doesn't have vitamin E in it? Is it because the cuts are off? You know, it's like, so we focus a lot on our technical factors, but honestly, I think the issue is we over-indicate them and not because we're bad people or we're lazy, but because when people fail the easy things, braces, pills, shots, and they keep coming back to the office, you know, like, well, the only thing I have left is to saw out your knee and replace it with metal and plastic. Like, that's the only thing left. And they say, okay, and you do it. But people are universally much more happy with their arthritis surgery if they have rest pain. If they only have activity pain, I can make activity pain better, but I can't promise you that I'm going to eliminate it. I can essentially eliminate rest pain though. So does that mean like, you know, when you're having these patients in your office, lived, your conversation is now, you know, kind of what is the activity level? You know, when does it actually bother you? And then you try to see if it's something that just bothers when they're sitting there versus something, you know, when they're out playing tennis, for example, that it bothers them then. Um, do you, you know, just reading on and, and, you know, doing some research and just writing up, getting ready for this, you know, I saw, you know, there, there is a sector of patients that had first CMC instability that ended up, you know, just from competitive, repetitive trauma leading to um, CMC arthritis. Do you see that in your clinic or have you seen that or, um, or, you know, how common is that? Is that something that you see? It's a good question. So, so I, it exists on radiographs commonly, especially in women. And uh, Jennifer Wolf, who's uh, at University of Chicago, who I work with in the in the fellowship, has done a lot of very high level research looking at um, uh, some of the uh, hormones, estrogen, and their effect on ligament laxity, which may partially uh, account for the reason that women have a higher rate of symptomatic CMC arthritis than men do. So I, I definitely do think that there is this hypermobility joint laxity thing that leads to increased radiographic arthritis. Now, does that lead to increased symptomatic arthritis? I'm not so sure. Um, you know, I, it, it, I think it's a thing that may, maybe sees you and you don't see it. It's that sort of arthritis via laxity. You'll see it in your Ehlers-Donlos patients. Uh, you'll see it in Marfan's patients. You see it in really young women, like late twenties, like you're too young to have arthritis, but you kind of do. You know, those are the people you see it in. The rest, I, I don't know that I would really, I think it's unfair to lump it with hypermobility is, is the cause of it. And so, I mean, when you see them, what's your, what's your physical exam like? You know, what are you, in your head, if I'm watching you or, you know, if I'm going through your head and you, you, you're about to examine that, the hand or the wrist or however you do it, how do you do your physical exam for these patients? It, well, the, the most important thing is you go to where the money is last. I mean, again, I know from the history what's going on, right? So what I want to do is I want to make sure I'm right. So the first thing I do for an examination for thumb arthritis is I go to their radial styloid because I don't want to get fooled and start going down an arthritis pathway and they got the queer veins. Then I look pretty stupid, right? So I go to the radial styloid first. Uh, then I go to the snuff box. Then I'm going to go to the IP joint and the MCP joint and squeeze on those. And typically, if you're trying to figure out if a joint hurts, you squeeze on the collateral ligaments of it. And if that's tender, then it's probably you know related to the joint, usually arthritis. Um, then I'm going to kind of stress the MCP to figure out if they don't have some gamekeeper slump because you don't want to miss that. Then you look really stupid. But really, the thing is you squeeze at the base of the thumb and the pad, uh, which is usually where they point. Um, and that is the area that is symptomatic. Now you talk about CMC grind tests and that sort of stuff. I don't do that. That really, really hurts people. I don't usually need to do it. Really just that squeeze front and back of the CMC joint is good enough. Now, the other thing you want to make sure of to associate things are FCR tendonitis and STT arthritis. So again, you'll, you'll, I'll run my finger down the volar scaphoid and over the FCR and push on that and see if they don't have tendonitis from FCR tendonitis. If they do, I'm happy because I can usually make that go away with a steroid shot. If that doesn't work, you can cut the tendon and they're fine. STT arthritis, you don't want to miss. Uh, you'll see it on x-ray all the time, but it's rarely symptomatic. So for that one, you're going to put your, I put my middle finger on the back part of their wrist overlying the STT joint, and I uh, maximally extend and radially deviate their wrist. 
And if they hurt underneath my middle finger where the SCT joint is, then their SCT is symptomatic. Okay. And, and we have a majority of resident, you know, some um, fellow and attending listeners, but we do have a small bit of medical student listeners. Can you, uh, what is the FCR and the STT that you're referring to? Oh, sorry about it. I, oh, yeah, no, so, you're fine. So, <laughs> so the FCR is the flexor carpi radialis tendon. That's on the uh, uh, volar or palmar side of, of the hand and it helps bend your wrist, uh, flex your wrist um, like you're doing a, a wrist curl. Um, you also have the FCU, which does that. So you're allowed to get rid of the FCR tendon um, if it's, if you need it for some other purpose, it's expendable. Um, but basically that tendon goes and does a 45 degree curve and it drapes right over the front of the CMC joint. And when the CMC joint gets arthritic, you get spurs, they'll kind of irritate and rub on that tendon and they give people tendonitis. They can actually lead to tendon rupture sometimes, uh, which is not a problem, but can scare patients if that happens. And the STT joint is the um, scaphoid uh Tra uh, trapezoid trapezium joint. Um, and so that's sort of on the other side of the trapezium. So the, the CMC joint that we're talking about is between the trapezium and the thumb metacarpal. And if you move more proximally closer to the elbow, then that uh, trapezium articulates with both the scaphoid and the trapezoid. And you can get arthritis there as well, which is rarely symptomatic, but can be. Okay. And so you said, you know, you start off with your palpation, you palpate radial styloid, you palpate the uh, uh, the snuff box, and you go along, you know, distally along the CMC joint and the I, thumb IP joint. And you also um, check volarly for any um, FCR tendonitis, which you can, you know, you can palpate that tendon. And then you also will um, check for any STT um, arthritis <clears throat> by palpating right over that joint as well. And so, you know, say you've done your, you know, your history, you know, the 50 year old, you know, lady came in, points right towards her first CMC joint. You examine her, she has tenderness right over the first CMC joint. Are you getting any imaging? And if so, what are you getting and what are you looking for? Yeah, I, I get radiographs on every single person that comes into my office, uh, period. Uh, you don't want to miss something. Uh, it's, it's just, it's too easy, available and cheap a test. Uh, it gives you too much information to not get it. Um, so uh, I get three views, ideally of the thumb. Sometimes depending on when they come through the call center, they just say my hand hurts, my wrist hurts and the way they may get hand x-rays instead, which is fine. It's enough for me to make the diagnosis and to make sure that there's not some bony tumor there, right? Which rarely happens, but sometimes happens. Um, and I, I get those x-rays and I, I'm just looking for joint space narrowing, uh, bone spurs, uh, subluxation of the um, uh, thumb metacarpal dorsally, kind of po poking out over the backside of the uh, trapezium. Um, and that's that's really what I'm looking for on, on, on that. I don't need any other advanced imaging or anything like that. Okay. And, you know, so you're just looking at this to, again, evaluate just for, you know, joint space narrowing, any dorsal subluxation, because we, we talked a little bit earlier about those dorsal ligaments can be lax. And then, you know, also from, I guess, historical or reading of the apical oblique or that beak ligament can get some laxity, but either way, the metacarpal is uh, sublux a little dorsally uh, when compared to the trapezium. So exactly. And so that's our APOB laterals. Now, just in reading, I saw uh, some other uh, some other X-rays, and I want to see if, if you if you use these. But one was called like the true um, the true lateral, I guess, of the hand or get a view. Is that something you use, or is that one of the views that you're referring to? Yeah. So uh, the getta, if I'm not mistaken, they shoot it um, with the patient holds their hand uh, kind of in karate chop position, and uh, the beam is shot down from the the thumbnail side, the dorsal side of the thumb down to the, the plate underneath. Oh, and okay. it, it gives you sort of a really nice view of the, the metacarpal resting on the trapezium. And you can see how narrow or not that is and how much it looks like it's sliding out usually to the radial side. Now there's another actually called Robert's view, uh, which is not mine. <laughs> and it's, <laughs> it's, it's basically the opposite. You have the patient turn their hand so that the, their thumbnail is resting down on the plate and the image is shot, uh, the, the uh, beam is shot down um, from the palm side. 
I actually like that view a little bit better. It can be harder. You have to have a fair amount of shoulder mobility uh, in order to get your hand that pronated. Um, and so a lot of older patients can't quite do that. Um, but uh, I, I do like that view. I think it's it's useful, especially when you're looking for osteophytes for surgical planning. Uh, but I don't think it's mandatory to make the diagnosis. Okay. And then one last thing I, I had found um, was an Eaton and Little view. But I think that was a one of the papers I was reading that had that talked about CMC instability and arthritis. So is this, uh, is, do you ever use this view or is this more, you'll get this for instability um, of the CMC joint to see if there's any, or is this more just like one of the historical papers and one of the things just, just kind of have in your toolbox is Eaton and Little AP view. Yeah. Yeah. So Eaton and Little is, so, so not, not to throw stones at my academic colleagues, but it is more of a bow tie test. I mean, this is a, this is nice to have on the quiz or, you know, something like that, but in, in real life, I mean, I just, I use the x-rays I have. I never reshoot x-rays unless they're completely abysmal and, and not diagnostic. Um, it's just not worth it to the patient. Uh, slows up your clinic. Uh, it's just not something I can reliably do. Um, I don't feel that, that uh, I can really reliably uh, figure out instability based on these static x-rays, even when they have pushing the thumbs together. So I, I don't, I don't use this one. Okay. And, um, and are there any classification systems that you use for, you know, the CMC arthritis? Yeah. So the Eaton and Littler, uh, one, um, is, is the one that's most classically used, uh, like everything else, it's usually one to four. And so the early stages actually, um, they describe for like stage one, the joint space expands. So rather than seeing any joint space narrowing, you see joint space expansion. And the concept is that in the CMC joint in particular, you get uh, such proliferative uh, synovitis uh, that causes pain, has not yet chewed up the, the joint enough that you see any destructive changes on x-ray, but you actually see joint space widening. That's stage one. Stage two, you see like a little, little bit of a shift uh, the, the thumb is kind of sliding out of the CMC joint just a little bit, not totally, a little narrowing, couple spurs. Stage three, you know, even more, like more spurs, more more um, joint space narrowing um, and cysts. And then uh, joint four is like total obliteration of the joint um, where there's just <laughs> no daylight, you know. Um, and so, you know, uh, quite frankly, the, the stage four, is, you don't need an x-ray to see. You see what we'll call the shoulder deformity. When you look at the hand clinically, that CMC joint is like pushed way out radially. And, and a lot of times what people come in complaining about most, it's not the pain. It's not that they can't grip. It's not that they can't pinch. It's doctor, look at this big bump over here on my hand. It's like a bunion. You know, I don't like it. This looks like my mother's hand, you know? Okay. And I hear that as a primary complaint 30% of the time. And, and I think that's a, a great way to transition into next is uh, you mentioned a little bit earlier about, you know, us not necessarily just looking at the x-ray and seeing that there's arthritis, but also seeing, you know, the function, you know, if they have activity related pain or having resting pain. Um, can you kind of talk about the non-operative treatment of CMC arthritis and, and, and what that is and which patients are getting that treatment? For sure. For sure. Well, everybody gets non-op treatment for arthritis in the beginning for every joint period. Uh, you know, it's, if, if arthritis is a problem, you start with non-op because like we were talking about before, every joint is going to get arthritic on x-ray given enough time, but they're not all symptomatic. And people go through phases where they're symptomatic for a few weeks or even a few months. And then it burns out. And the number of patients that come in with horrible CMC arthritis and, you know, they come in for some completely unrelated problem. And I'll put, I was like, does it hurt over here? Oh, well, 15 years ago, it really hurt a lot. And I got a couple of shots. And I got some braces and then it stopped. And I mean, and the x-ray is just trash. I mean, it just looks awful um, and they have no motion, and but they don't hurt there anymore. So, I mean, I could do a surgery on that, but why would I? That's not why they're here. So your goal is to convert as many patients as you can from symptomatic positive arthritis to asymptomatic positive. Uh, Cause I don't care what the x-ray looks like if they don't have pain. So how do you do that? Typical things, bracing of some form. Uh, you can make custom ones in therapy. I really like there's an off the shelf one um, uh, called a Metagrip uh, designed by a hand therapist. That's super effective. Um, Anti-inflammatories. So that's pills, right? 
That's topical cream, Voltaren gels over the counter now. Topicals work really well for the hand because the skin and everything is so thin on top of the joints, it can really get down to the joints pretty easily. Uh, other topicals, CBD oil, get a lot of patients swear by that. Um, other anti-inflammatory steroid injections. Um, then you're looking at um, uh, occupational therapy. Uh, there have been some studies that show that it can help patients uh, with their pain. Um, so I, I don't offer that as a first line treatment because it's pretty expensive, to be honest with you, uh, but it, um, it's safe. And so if the easy things don't work and they want something else, and they're not ready for surgery. OT is certainly reasonable. Um, uh, PRP, platelet-rich plasma injections, that has more of a role for hip and knee arthritis at this point, because that's where the data is. There's currently no data on hand arthritis. Uh, I tell patients, it, medically, it's the best bargain I've got. I'm taking your own blood out of your body, spinning it down, putting it back in you. It's nearly impossible for me to hurt you with this shot. I may not help you. I may waste your money, but I'm not going to hurt you. And depending right. on your institution, it's an $800 gamble or a $2,000 gamble or whatever the gamble is. And you tell them the price. And unlike other things that are quote unquote covered by insurance, I can tell you the exact dollar amount with this, you know, for your steroid shot, which is covered. How much am I going to have to pay doc? I have no idea. I, c- I couldn't begin to tell you. I can tell you to the nickel, how much you're going to pay for PRP. Right. And it may help and it may not, you know, but it, we can try it. And to, to follow up with that, you know, you saying you know, first things we're starting, you know, activity modification, bracing, and you mentioned one brace called a Metagrip, which I'll probably look up at some point after we finish up here and see what it is. Uh, you mentioned topical analgesics, just, you know, like the, you could probably use the Voltaren gel, the CBD oil. Um, how do you do your injections? Uh, just, I guess, uh, for style points, just a personal curiosity um, in the clinic. Do you just feel for the joint? Um, dorsally and, and, you know, aim in with an 18 gauge or 21 gauge needle, or what do you, what do you typically do for that? 18 or 21 gauge needle. You're mean, you're mean, <laughs> man. No, so first of all, 25 gauge needles. Okay, you don't need to stick anybody with anything fatter than a 25 gauge needle, unless they stole money from you. Okay? Uh, right. <laughs> Second, you know, now hand joints are tiny, right? They're hard to get into. So I cheat. Um, I essentially do no blind hand injections because they're hard to do. Uh, so I use ultrasound for everything. My small joint injections, carpal tunnel, trigger finger, uh, wrist joint. I don't use it for elbow because if you can't get an elbow with a needle, you need a, a new job. Uh, but, you know, um, putting it where you want to put it in the shoulder, you know, like, like uh, I think ultrasound is super helpful. Um, so for me, I will take the ultrasound transducer and I put it on, on the straight volar side of the thumb on the palm side. And so I line up uh, the, the center point on that with the CMC joint. Then I stick my needle in the dorsal side. So I basically in the midline of the thumb, you know, in the middle split in the, uh, the fingernail, uh, kind of that line. Um, you know, I know somewhere along that line is a CMC joint and I use the ultrasound to tell me how far up or down the thumb it is. And I stick it in that way. Ah, okay. All right. So say we have our patient that has gone through, you know, all this non-op treatment, they come back and they're saying, doc, you know, we tried it all. I even tried to OT, spent a lot of money on it, still having this pain. And now the pain, you know, is, is really bothersome when I'm just sitting there just watching TV, not even doing anything. Um, can you kind of go over some of the operative treatment options and then, you know, which, you know, what patients are they indicated in or what, you know, kind of what it is? Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. So, so, um, yeah. And, and you, you nailed it. <laughs> um, it's once they told me they got rest pain. Okay. It's like, now you've, you've bought yourself a surgery if you want one. And again, there's, there's nothing mandatory about it. There's no such thing as too late. You know, this isn't, I, I understand why sometimes the hip and knee, uh, and spine folks are like, well, you know, it's getting bad enough and it's not terrible, but you may want to have this now at 70 rather than at 80. Cause it's a big surgery and you don't necessarily want to go through it at 80 valid for a hip replacement, valid for a spinal fusion, not for a thumb arthritis surgery. You know I mean? I could do this biologically. You could be 95. That doesn't matter. So there's no such thing as too late. The uh, people get mad when you do the surgery too early. So that's the first thing I tell people, but then what surgery do you do? Well, you know, the, the, the books used to say you can do anything you want as long as you don't put in an implant. Um, and with the old implants, I think that's true. I don't think that's currently true. I actually do mostly implants for this, uh, uh, condition now, but like everything else, uh, you know, you have options for osteotomy, 
to um, change the axis of the joint, um, which actually is probably the best surgery for thumb CMC arthritis, uh, um, something called a Wilson extension osteotomy. Um, you can do uh, uh, fusions, which I don't like for almost any joint, um, and especially this joint is a very hard joint to fuse. Um, you can do denervations, uh, which are gaining popularity. I do wrist denervations uh, very often. I do CMC denervations a little bit more commonly now. Um, it's a stopgap surgery. It's important to tell the patient that they work about 80% of the time. And work means they turn your pain down by 70%. And they are temporary. They last two to five years. Okay. But if you, you know, again, you're trying to fill this donut hole between non-op treatment and the big arthroplasty option. And some people aren't ready for the big commitment of their arthroplasty surgery for very good reasons. So they want to try that. So that's reasonable. I don't do scopes anymore. Scope debridement and interposition is a well-described uh, treatment. Um, for me, you know, it was 50% of the time it works every time. Uh, when it worked, it was awesome. I mean, they did great. They maintained great pinch and grip. I use it on my young, heavy, active people. Uh, but the problem is no matter how careful I was making my portals, spreading with a little hemostat, trying to avoid the sensory branch of the radial nerve, I got horrible neuritis, that nerve about 50% of the time. And it took months and months and months for that to get better. And then it would get better, but you know, it wasn't that much fun. Uh, but that's certainly an option. Um, trapeziectomy is, is the mainstay of treatment. You remove the trapezium. And then once you remove the trapezium, you can do anything, including nothing. You can just stop. You can pin the thumb metacarpal out into space. You can hold the metacarpal in place uh, with, uh, you know, kind of a suture bridge, um, you know, contraption. You can do a tendon uh, reweaving of, and I could probably go over 30 different variations of, of LRTIs, uh, ways to weave that tendon, YLB, Thompson, you know, all these other things. Whenever you have that many, I mean, they either all work or none of them work. In this case, they all work. Um, and so, but you could do something to, to try to resuspend the, the thumb metacarpal. Um, and then, uh, and then the last option, uh, um, is, uh, is, um, implant arthroplasty. And that's the one I do most often. Now. Okay. And so I'd like to dive into a, a couple of those a little bit deeper, um, not way deep, but just a little bit. So when you're talking about the osteotomy, so the main, the main point of this, uh, can you kind of take us through like kind of the, the thought process behind the osteotomy and the cut and kind of what we're trying to achieve. And, and then what, what patients do you do this for? You know, you always read and you say there are a bunch of different options, but like, if you're in a clinic, how do you decide you're going to do this versus that? Yeah. You yeah, know, really, I mean, so in my practice, the osteotomy is for younger patients. Um, so I was actually listening to uh, one of your episodes with Seth Sherman. Um, you know, it's, you've, you've had all my buddies on this show. Yeah. Garbis and Sherman <laughs> and Brian Cole and Megan Kajinika. Yeah. And I'm like, man, now, now I'm big time. I'm Here we go. Big. Now we got uh, you on. <laughs> but, but so Seth, you know, was talking about, um, you know, these osteotomies he does about the knee for knee arthritis. And uh, I think it's a very similar point. The, one of the things that hurts so much about arthritis is you are point loading things that aren't supposed to be point loaded. And so you get the deformity, but it's really, you're changing the mechanical axis with the deformity. So if you can recorrect the mechanical axis, redirect the joint forces, things hurt a lot less. So this Wilson osteotomy, it's a closing wedge extension osteotomy. So you use about 30 degrees, you take a pizza pie cut out of the dorsal aspect of the thumb metacarpal and close it down. And you can fix it with pins or screws or plate and screws or whatever. Um, and it works because it redirects the force. What happens when that thumb metacarpal starts to push out dorsally, when, the more you load the joint with power grip, the more it pushes out dorsally. It kind of, right. it's, a, it's a slippery slope. So if I can extend the thumb metacarpal, so now when I load it with heavy grip, it doesn't want to push out the back so much. It doesn't hurt. Okay. Um, it's a hard surgery to do though. And that's a reason people don't like it. It's, it's very difficult to do. Mm, okay. And so that is the, okay. That, that makes way more sense. That's the metacarpal, uh, the osteotomy, the arthroscopy you mentioned before, when you used to do it, you know, you did your scope and then you, um, did you, you also did a tendon interposition with the arthroscopy or what did you, what did you used to do for that? I use, I use an off the shelf, uh, dermal allograft substitute, okay. um, you know, and basically you expand one of the, the portals and you just kind of stuff this thing in there and it started to spit out at you and stuff it in and spits out. And that's almost <laughs> as frustrating as everything else is trying to shove this thing in there and get it yeah, to stay. It comes right and, back out. 
and you think and hope it stayed in the joint and not floating out in the soft tissue, but you don't know. <laughs> um, yeah. But, uh, but yes. Yeah, so, so that that's sort of the, the concept is you um, give yourself a little bit more room by shaving off the joint surface of both the metacarpal and the uh, trapezium. And then you just stuff this um, matrix in there to give you a little cushion. Ah, okay. Okay. makes sense. And then you mentioned the, trapezial uh, trapezectomy uh and i remember the first time i heard of this i was like so you just you just take the bone now like you know doesn't the the bones won't they won't they shift won't the function of the the, the thumb change uh, but you, like you just said you just mentioned you know you could do many things you could take the bone out and leave it there uh, you could you could pin the uh, first and the second metacarpal so can you kind of take us through like you know why why does this even work? You know, like, why is this trapeziectomy? I know you're taking out the arthritic surface, but you would think that maybe, oh, well, this would now just be unstable and there's just something kind of floating around in the, in the, in the, in the wrist area here. At least that's what I used to think as a very young learner. Yeah, well, you're not wrong. And I will tell you, whenever you see something and it sounds insane, you know, the first time you hear about it, you're like, that sounds insane, but everyone's on board with this. Write it down in your notebook. Come back to it because everyone will tell you, oh, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. This is the way we've always done it. And it works. And then you go, oh, people do it this way and it does work. But the fact that your gut reaction was that sounds crazy means that there's room for improvement, right? <laughs> right. You know, I, like, like it is not a normal thing to just, I'm going to take this bone out and throw it in the trash can. What? Yeah. Throw yeah. it in the trash can. You'll be fine. What? So, you know, joints stop hurting when you fuse them, when you remove the joint. So, you know, you, you resection arthroplasty, you take one half of the joint out. So there's nothing pushing anymore. So it stops hurting. Uh, or when you do uh, realignments, so you stop loading the most painful part of it, that's an osteotomy. Or when you do an arthroplasty and an arthroplasty does a few things. It creates a, a charcoal joint, right? So it's a, it's a neuropathic joint. You can't feel the plastic, can't feel the metal, but it also changes the mechanical axis. And very reasonable, smart surgeons can't necessarily agree on what is the most important part of an arthroplasty. Is it the realignment or is it the neuropathic charcoal joint you've created? Or is it both? But so when you do a trapeziectomy, you're doing a resection. So there's nothing to rub anymore. The thumb metacarpal isn't pushing on anything. So the pain goes away. But you definitely lose grip strength. And you have to warn patients. So your young, heavy laborer patients, it's not a great operation for them. That's why people started advocating fusion for those people because it maintains strength. But fusion is a lousy operation because I don't care what anyone tells you, you cannot get your hand flat on the table or on the ground anymore in a push-up position. If you can, it means your fusion didn't work. So okay. it, it, you know, those are those options which aren't great. Okay, good. I appreciate you for explaining that. And you mentioned the LRTI. Uh, what is that? And then can you kind of take us through? Because just like you're saying, I remember the first time I was, you know, I had a hand rotation and we were going to do some stuff with the CMC joint. And, and I was looking it up and there are a million and one different <laughs> different techniques of of, uh, of how to do the, you know, ligament reconstruction. Can you, can you take us through kind of what it is and how it works? And then the general, I guess, principles of this, since, you know, we know there are so many different, you know, written techniques out there, but kind of what the general principles are. Sure. Sure. Well, you know, the, we, it's a resection arthroplasty at, at its core. So it, you heard of a girdle stone for a hip arthritis? Correct. Yes. Yeah. So it's a girdle stone of the thumb, right? Have you ever seen a patient with a girdle stone? I have. Yeah. They actually do surprisingly well. I mean, they, yeah. they've got a limp, whatever, but they're walking, they're doing okay. And their pain is gone, but it's not, if I gave you a choice between a girl stone and a total hip for your hip arthritis, you say total hip every day. Right. Right. And so trapeziectomy is a girdle stone of the thumb. And so it works, pain goes away, but then in order to help sort of ameliorate some of these concerns about uh, shortening of the thumb, loss of the pension grip, people are like, well, maybe if I stuff something in that gap, that'll help act as a cushion and prevent the thumb from coming in. So that's like a tendon interposition. So you can use some off the shelf something, you can take half of uh, the FCR tendon or all the FCR tendon stuff that in there. Um, and so that can help to act as a cushion. Uh, then the ligament reconstruction. So part of the thing is, well, I want to help resuspend the thumb and I also want to put something in this space. So LRTI, ligament reconstruction, tendon interposition. And the tendon interposition is stuffing something in there. We call it an anchovy when you wad it up. 
Uh, and the ligament reconstruction, you can take a strip of FCR, you can take part of APL, you can, uh, you know, weave FCR to APL, APL around FCR, drill tunnels through the thumb metacarpal, no drill tunnels. It doesn't really matter. The point is you're trying to pull that thumb up one and then stuff something in the space too. And so that's what, no matter what the technique is, that's what they're designed to try to do. Ah, okay. Okay. And yeah, I, I remember I used to look and it would say, you know, you take one half of the SCR, just like you said, you could also be done with the um, APL uh, or the EPB or the extensor pollicis brevis. Um, so you could be done with any of those, but uh, I like how you just mentioned and re to reiterate that this is a trapeziectomy and that we're putting somewhere, something in there to kind of help restore um, the length, I guess you could say, or, 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 or that, you know, help with that power grip and kind of just put something in that space as well. And, um, and one thing that I, one thing I guess you mentioned already, but this was a, a specific name that I, that I looked at when, we were, when I was preparing for it. This was a hematoma distraction arthroplasty, but I think that was a fancy, not fancy, but it was uh, the appropriate word for when you mentioned earlier, we do a trapeziectomy and then you could just pin um, the first uh, metacarpal to the second metacarpal. Now, is this something that you do or do people do this as well as a ligament reconstruction or is this kind of just in its own like you, know, you take out the trapezium and you just you just pin it to the other metacarpal yeah so great question so so basically um we know that all of those options work no matter how fancy you get and the complications from this surgery of a trapeziectomy tend to be with the more fancy and the more additional other things you do the pulling the bone out isn't what gives you the problem it's like all those other things you do so Roy Meals uh, was a former editor of uh, Journal of Hand Surgery. He really popularized this. Basically, nature abhors a vacuum. If I pull the, the bone out and do nothing, I'm worried that the thumb is going to shorten before that space is going to fill in with scar tissue. But if I pin the metacarpals together to kind of you know, keep the space propped open, I'll bleed in there. Uh, that clot will organize. It'll turn into more of a scar wad. So I'll get more of a firm pillow in there. I pull the wire at six weeks, give or take, and then uh, it should have less room to shorten. That's the thought. The, the, but the take home is, I don't care what you do, take the bone out, don't do anything, pen it for six weeks, do some ligament reconstruction. At 12 weeks, that space collapses on every single patient. Mm, okay. Okay. And, and then I guess one of the last things that you mentioned that you actually were saying that this is something that you do. And that there are a whole like list of options of, of different implants when I was when I was uh, looking and reading on this. But can you guys go through um, in general like what these different implants are and how they are used for uh, for CMC arthro uh, arthro arthritis? Sure, sure. Well, you know, I'll the the one family of implants is like you know cushions of various types. So either made out of cadaver tendon made out of silicone made out of um, like braided nylon um, you know, but something to cushion the CMC joint with or without the trapezium in place. So sometimes people will like do nothing and just stuff something in between um, the, uh, the metacarpal and the trapezium. And those typically don't work very well. Then you have the ones where you pull out the trapezium and stuff something in there. And again, those all work fine really because the main thing that you had to do was remove the bone. So that that's all fine. But then the, the last type of, of implant arthroplasty is more like what you're used to from your hip replacements and your knee replacements, some metal or metal and plastic uh, kind of spacer that both uh, resurfaces and realigns the joint. And so that's the kind I use. I use a, a, um, a hemiarthroplasty that resurfaces the metacarpal side. Um, I leave the trapezium largely alone. Uh, and then basically this implant works differently. It's like that Wilson osteotomy we talked about in okay. a box. You saw the bottom of the metacarpal off and this implant has got a 30 degree osteotomy baked into the implant and you just stick it down the IM canal of the metacarpal. And so it gives you like a perfect osteotomy every single time. And so that's really what it is. It is an arthroplasty, but it really functions more like an osteotomy. And like you said, so you leave the the trapezium, you, the um, you leave the trapezium alone. You don't do anything to articular surface in that case, but you do resurface the metacarpal. But trapezium stays as is, and and you just apply this implant. And I assume the 
the uh, more proximal portion of the implant is somewhat designed to fit the trapezium if you're leaving it alone. Exactly. Exactly. So, so the things I, I just take off the bone spurs off the trapezium that would interfere with the implant sitting around. Um, so sometimes you get these really, really large bone spurs um, usually on the volar side. And so you got to kind of cut those off. So that the implant, uh, which is, you know, saddle shaped at the bottom, sort of like your, your Pringle chip, you know, it can fit back over. There's a lip that goes on the volar side that again, resists that dorsal translation force with power grip. Uh, and that's why the implant is stable. So it doesn't dislocate. Um, but they have bipolar implants where you have like a little cup that almost looks like an acetabular component of a hip that screws into the, uh, a trapezium and like a little stem that goes in the metacarpal. Um, there's all kinds of different, different options. Okay, cool. Well, I think, uh, I think overall, I think there's been a great talk on, um, CMC arthritis. We talked about the anatomy of it. We even talked about the epidemiology before that, the anatomy of it. You know, what to look for on, you know, when we're talking to these patients, what to, how to look for for examination. We talked about the x-rays and um, what you're looking for. We talked about, you know, looking for the dorsal subluxation. We talked about the classification and all these different, um, all these different treatment options, all the way from um, arthroscopy to hemiarthroplasty of some sort. Is there anything else about first CMC arthritis that you want the uh, listeners to know or, 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 or take away from this episode? You know, only uh, what I said before about indicating the patients. Diagnosing arthritis is idiot work. Anybody can do it. Indicating arthritis surgery is hard. And that really, it doesn't have to do with the imaging. It doesn't have to do with this. It has to do with talking to your patient and seeing what their symptoms are and how bad they are. And that goes for any joint in the body. Indicating the patient is the hard part of arthritis, not the technical aspects of the surgery, not that stuff. I, I can teach a monkey how to do that. Right. And, and at the end of our episodes or towards the end of our episodes, we typically give, you know, our guests, you know, any, um, if you have any social media, anyway, for you know, our listeners to reach out to you or follow you, whether it be a social media, email, whatever you, whatever you want, if you have, if you want to totally up to you. Um, or, you know, they can follow you or anything. So if you do have some, you know, feel free to, to let the, the world know. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, so I'm, I'm accessible maybe to a fault. Uh, I got a website, uh, uh, www.robgraymd.com. That's a very uh, nice website, by the way. I <laughs> oh, it yeah. I Thank you. The design of it. It, was, it was very sleek. I liked it. I, I, I actually did it myself. <laughs> um, but, uh, but so, so, and then on the, you know, so my uh, Instagram is the same thing, Rob Gray MD. And uh, my Twitter handle is the same thing at Rob Gray MD. That's awesome. And then uh, Dr. Grave also being um, so nice to, uh, provide us with kind of the surgical approach uh, video of how to at least do this or how to approach the joint, which we'll go through. For those of you that are listening, you can feel free to check out the YouTube channel to uh, to learn a little bit more and actually see what we're talking about. If you want to stick around and listen in, uh, I think that's great and that's awesome. Uh, but let's go ahead and, and, and take a look at this. And so is this your main um, your main approach for any, any CMC work? This is kind of your main approach that you do. Is that correct? Exactly. Yeah. I do a dorsal approach, whether I'm going to do an implant or a trapeziectomy or, or a neurectomy, I'm going to do it all through the same incision. Okay. And what are your landmarks for marking out this incision? So basically, um, you know, the, if you extend the incision in your mind all the way up to the thumbnail, you know, to kind of bisect the, the thumbnail, the 50 yard line, and then goes all the way down, uh, you know, that line to the rail styloid, and you just center it over the CMC joint. Um, and you make it as long as you need to. Uh, usually it's about three to four centimeters for, for an arthroplasty, uh, two to three centimeters if you're doing a denervation. Okay. And are you doing this under Mac and some local, or are they like completely out most of the time, or does it depend on the patient? Uh, it depends. I've done it under everything. I've even done these under straight local. Um, you know, when you're doing the trapeziectomy under straight local or the implant under straight local, it's a lot to ask of the patient. I mean, you can get through the surgery, but they're kind of hurting in the recovery area. So for the implants, I usually do a regional block. Um, if I'm doing a denervation, I'll do that under Mac uh, with system local. Okay. All right, cool. So uh, I guess I'll click play here and then you can kind of just walk us through um, a little bit about of, of what's happening here and, and we can just go through that. Sure. Uh, so the first thing you're going to look for is you want to find your uh, EPB tendon. That's the lighthouse um, to the thumb. There's like a little sheath on top of it. 
Um, and so at yeah, this point, the um, right there. Uh, sensory branch of the radial nerve, we've we've identified and retracted that um, with the uh, uh, weedy on both sides. And now I'm opening up this uh, um, sheath on top of the EPB. And if you stick on top of it, um, you can spread off uh, both the branches of the sensory branch of the radial nerve and also the uh, radial artery. Um, I'm going to take it proximally and uh, release it completely to the first compartment. And I release the first compartment on every one of these. You don't want to come back and have to do a decor veins on these patients later on. Plus the more you mobilize the tendon, the safer it is. Uh, okay. Just a tension on that tendon with a weedy, uh, it can actually rupture the EPB uh, during the course of a case. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, so you, you just fix it with a stitch, but it's, you don't want it. So first thing again, so just to repeat, first thing we did is you went down and sized over uh, the tendon sheath over the extensor pollicis brevis. You release a little that proximally and then you release it. Yeah. Release it proximally and the superficial branch of, um, of the, of the radial nerve. That's, that's superficial to, you know, to everything. That's why you're, you're using your scissors to kind of stay underneath, um, underneath that, that nerve. Correct. Correct. Yeah. You got to really watch out for that nerve. If you ding that nerve and get an aroma, you're going to be in worse pain than they were from their arthritis. So you just really want to avoid that. Um, and that's in my practice, what I've seen revising people, the number one cause of failed CMC surgery is SBRN neuroma. Uh, it's not impingement. It's not whatever. It's not SCT arthritis. It's SBRN neuroma. Okay. All right. And, um, Okay, cool. So you see the little tendon, you know, my yellowish um, structure and use this whittlers to just, what are, what are we doing? Are we just teasing? Are we just trying to? Yeah, so, so the... now I'm trying to work. Um, so, so first compartment is EPB and APL. So I got to uh, show APL. APL terminates at the base of the um, thumb metacarpal. And so when I'm doing my implant arthroplasty and I'm sawing off the, the base of the uh, metacarpal, I often end up disinserting this a fair uh, degree. But here you can see I'm working on top of um, APL and kind of showing those fibers and releasing that. Um, and you often will see some of the muscle fibers from uh, the thenars over there, and you can just release those. That's fine. Uh, there's no penalty in doing that. And our APL is this right here exactly correct? that's exactly. our apl and then this up here is our epb tendon right correct. there and you're just kind of just just freeing up between there and then and then our superficial branch of radial nerves is somewhere around over here if i'm 100 if i'm not uh too mistaken here no, cool. no, no, you're, you're perfect. And, and, and so we want to work in between those two tendons. So, you know, we, you release on top of EPB and APL, so you mobilize them. I'm going to pull uh, EPB uh, ulnarly or dorsally, and I'm going to pull APL uh, volarly or radially. Uh, I'm going to you know, kind of put that weedy back in there and, and keep working in that space. And that'll protect me from my sensory branch, the radial nerve, and also the radial artery, which radial artery courses directly on top of the uh, scaphoid. So it's a good way to find it. If you are doing a trapeziectomy, if you had to move the radial artery to get to the bone, stop. You're about to pull out the wrong bone. Don't do that. And it goes dorsal to the um, uh, trapezium to, to form that um, feeder in passing in through the first dorsal area osseous uh, and princess pollicis of the thumb. So let's see here. So this is us kind of, you're just, again, making that, developing that interval between the APL and the EPB and then, this is kind of more of the the capsule right underneath these two tendons, right? And and so you, there's like a little areolar layer layer with um, the feeders from the radial artery that go down to the joint capsule and uh, more stout. So now I'm putting in the weedy underneath those tendons, and so you want to stay right on top of that. Um, in doing this, this also I've taken the nerve branches, so that I've basically done the denervation right here. Um, so branches from SBRN to the joint we took off. And branches from palmar cutaneous branch and median nerve we took off uh, to get down there. Now, by working in this plane, this will help me um, prevent injury to the radial artery. And I do a capsulectomy. I do sort of an L-shaped capsulectomy, which I just drew out there with the scissors, where I come across the uh, uh, base of the metacarpal and then down on the radial side of the metacarpal. And I flap that back up. Uh, that keeps me from, uh, if I come across the uh, um, capsule a little bit more proximally, I can take out the radial artery to the um, trapezium, which I've maintained the trapezium is a problem. And you do an L-shaped capsulotomy kind of like, like that. 
uh, reversed. So, reversed. so yeah, yeah, yeah. 50, 50 chance here. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, believe me, you can spin it a couple other ways. So I do, I do the one limb, uh, transverse across the base of the metacarpal. Uh, yep. Uh, a little bit more distal. And then, um, yeah, then kind of something. Uh, what well, one more? So I basically, <laughs> I, I, I'm telling you, oh, the, man. Th- things are. Th- that's why surgery is hard. I mean, they have this stuff be very confusing pretty easily. So where that little red dot was, make your transverse limb right across there, kind of near the end of that weedy. Yeah, there you go, right there. Uh, tra- transverse across the base of that. Oh, there, there, there we go. So, so we yeah. got something here. Yeah. Yep. Those and, there. and then come proximal for then, along uh, APL. That's, that's, that's there it is. There we it. go. That's there are times yeah. a charm. <laughs> you know, no, well, I'm telling you, you can rotate it four different ways. Uh, but so, and that's my approach, whether I'm going to do an implant or trapeziectomy, it gives me a really nice capsular flap. I can flap that back down and close the joint up pretty nicely. Okay. Well, let's continue on here. So now you're actually about to do it <clears throat> still yakking about something i think i'm, I'm taking this uh aerial or tissue off the top okay uh, again to make sure that i don't back that radial artery can come sneak up on you as you're coming along the dorsal side of that metacarpal so if you don't elevate that off you could definitely get that radial artery which isn't the end of the world um the hand isn't going to fall off but you just want to avoid it you just rather not exactly and so now i'm coming i'm making that transverse cut on the metacarpal And then now I'm coming down inside of um, APL. All right. So this is right where APL used to be. Exactly. Behind it. Right. Exactly. And then I'm going to kind of. You're kind of teasing that off. Yeah, of the, exactly. Of the bone itself. Exactly. And I drop my knife real flat, real parallel to the bone so I can get all the periosteum up off of it. So you have a nice uh, layer to repair uh, down at the end. Okay, I like it. Well, um, and yeah, so this is just kind of finishing to raise uh, the rest of our capsule. And then now we're down to um, our first CMC joint. And then, you know, we're down to do whatever procedure that, you know, that we need to do, whether it be, you know, implant or, you know, hemiarthroplasty versus trapeziectomy and or whatever, you know, tendon ligament reconstruction um, that, you know, we can all kind of access that with this approach. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The, the structures to watch out for sensory branch of the radial nerve, uh, radial artery. If you, if you watch out for those, everything else will be okay. Yep. And, and just to repeat the, one of the keys, um, to not injure the radial artery was, uh, just raising those full flaps with where, where we know the artery is going to be in it. And so we know we're coming straight off of the bone and that we're not going to, you know, get into the wrong plane and accidentally nick the artery. Exactly. Well, again, Dr. Greer, I think this has been great. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to uh, come on the podcast and, and talk some hand and, and you know, we'll go through and share one of your surgical videos and kind of the approach and uh, spending time to break down and, you know, break it down and go through these different, uh, these different, um, uh, you know, approaches and uh, these different, uh, how many ways can I uh, draw a capsulectomy in the wrong direction? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the thing is, any of those would have worked. They just weren't the way I did it, you know, right. but, but, but all of those would have gotten you there. It really wouldn't have mattered. Right. <laughs> well, again, um, Dr. B, I really appreciate you coming on uh, to the show. Uh, for those listening, um, please uh, tune in and, and, and hit the subscribe button and go and leave us a review and let us know how much you enjoyed this episode uh, listening to it. And also, if you're on YouTube, I hope you like and subscribe to the channel and, and put a comment uh, in the in the comment section and uh, please don't go too rough on me for drawing these cash <laughs> the wrong way after you clearly described it the first way. Um, but uh, again, Dr. Gary, really appreciate it. Oh, th- thank you so much. I'm really excited with what you guys are doing. It's fantastic.